Sandra, we have uh, just a phenomenal and close friend of the show on today, um, Oz Hillman. Oz, welcome back to the podcast. John, so good to be with you. Always great to for us to uh, take on the world's issues. <laughs> yes, isn't it though? Uh, you know what? Um, I was just telling Sandra this morning that we did uh, an interview with your beautiful bride, Pamela. Um, if anybody wants to go back, it's on the healing power of forgiveness. It's probably one of the most, I think, powerful episodes we've done. One of the ones we've had the most comments on. If anybody wants to go listen to that, it's 121. And um, Oz, you've been on a couple of times. We've talked about keys to becoming a kingdom entrepreneur. That's episode 83. Um, the Joseph Calling, Six Stages to Discover, Navigate, and Fulfill Your Purpose. And I know that's something that was really resonated with our audience. That's was number uh, episode 160. And then 10 Golden Rules for Business Success, and that's 183. Um, but you and I were just talking, and um, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's something that's, that, that drives and is behind everything that you do. And if people out there have heard this term, the Seven Mountains Mandate. Um, that, that is a big part of it. And what we're going to do today is really dig into what Seven Mountains is, what it means to each of us as an individual, and what it means for our role really in our calling and in God's kingdom and what's actually happening today. And we see evidence of it, and it's, man, it's exploding everywhere. So with that, you know, Oz, I'd just love to turn it over to you and just kind of explain what is the Seven Mountains mandate, and then we can kind of dig in from there. Well, John, years ago in 1975, Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and Lauren Cunningham, who was the founder of Youth with a Mission, met each other for the very first time. They were both heads of very large uh, youth uh, evangelism organizations, discipling them and and really helping them share their faith in their uh, schools and colleges. And uh, But God spoke to both of these leaders and said, if we're going to shift the culture from moving away from God, then we're going to have to uh, go through a strategy to impact the seven mountains, or some of them call them mind molders, some of them call them gates. It doesn't really matter. We call them mountains based on uh, Isaiah 2.2. It talks about the mountains of the Lord. But um, anyway, they felt like that these seven areas most define the culture, arts and entertainment, business, uh, education, the family, government, and, uh, you know, media, and the church. And so these areas are often how people develop their worldview and uh, what they believe about uh, faith and culture and, and the values they're going to adopt. And so um, they started uh, an awareness of that, but it really didn't catch on. In fact, uh, I would say we've lost more ground than gained it over those last, you know, almost 35 years now. That uh, yeah. How's is that? that in the late uh, mid, what's that? When you say lost ground, does that mean kind of as as believers we've lost influence in some of these areas? Absolutely. I do believe we've lost influence in almost all of these areas. Uh, we've seen a, a loss of the spiritual foundations in our nation, and there have been various tipping points along the way that this has happened. And so what we uh, understand is that uh, probably what happened 
in that is that they were trying to equip these young people out of the church mountain, you know, where they were raising support for these young people. And so they didn't really have influence, but it's the marketplace that people that have the influence. And so when you see what happened in mid to late 90s, we had a real spiritual awakening in America among men and women in the marketplace. And that spiritual awakening was that I'm no longer a second-class citizen, but my calling is a spiritual calling too. And that's based on Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, do unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. And uh, so we began to see some movement in that area and you began to see more and more books come out on that topic. You began to have conferences come out. And then in the early 2000s, um, uh, we were rediscovering that message of the seven cultural mountains. And uh, what we learned even later was how one group of people actually shifted the entire culture uh, using that strategy. Well, and, you know, something you and I have talked about, you know, and it's kind of the good news, bad news uh, to start a revival, whether it's something really positive, something that has a very negative influence on our culture. You know, actually, and, and I've studied this, and I know you have, it only actually takes a small percentage of people, uh, and it's about 3 to 5%. Now, the, the good news is, let's just say you're, you're in a company with 100 employees uh, that's not really a fun place to work. It only takes 3 to 5 people to completely maybe change how they show up, how they talk to other people, uh, how, they, how they act, uh, that can actually turn that company around. Or three to five percent of those people actually that are very maybe negative, uh, they're gossipy, they're you know they have an agenda. They can actually hold that entire uh, ho- culture of that company completely hostage. But that same dynamic plays out in broad in our broader society, doesn't it, Oz? Well, it does, and and we learn that it only takes three to five percent of a leadership at the top of a cultural mountains to shift that mountain. Now, that sounds like an incredible over, you know, simplification or promise, but it's actually true. And the uh, the case study that we often cite is what the gay rights movement did. Back in 1987, there was a meeting of 175 gay activists, and uh, two Harvard uh, lawyers were there coordinating this meeting. And what they were there for is to uh, develop a strategy on how we can desensitize America's uh, negative perception of the gay rights uh, people. And uh, so they developed a book that was called After the Ball, and uh, in that book was a strategy. And uh, so over the several years, they realized that the you know, the kinky parades and so forth was not endearing people to themselves. And so what they did was they, they had uh, interviews or um, opportunities to uh, have um, actors and, and scripts written where there would be gay characters, and those characters would be seen as just normal people and be part of the fabric of society. They would get in and start writing about alternative sexual orientation in textbooks. They would start doing things in legislation and government, uh, and literally they changed laws in America. Just a few years ago, we had the, the um, legalization of 
about gay marriage in America. And so you see this very strategic way of shifting America's mindset on this issue, moving it from a moral issue to being a civil issue. And today, if you took a survey compared to just 10 years ago, that survey would look totally different with more and more people simply accepting this as just another way of life. Yeah, so it just kind of highlights that a small number of people that are very intentional and focused can actually shift perceptions in the culture. And, you know, something you, uh, you know, you had just talked about, right, in all these different mountains, you know, we've lost influence. Uh, we were just meeting with a group of business leaders here in Denver. We're talking about, you know, what what do we do to actually help ma- solve some of the problems that exist right here in, in Denver, in our community um, and, you know, one of the things that we talked about is it, the the reason that we don't have influence is because we've actually lost our ability to influence because of how what we've done, how we've showed up, and really we've been just absent in, in our role. So what are some of the things that we can do to start creating some influence back into these areas that we that we do, you know, that we operate in right now? Well, you know, a few years back, I was in New York City, and I was visiting uh, a woman who was in media, and she was head of NBC News uh, every, you know, the nightly news. And uh, I was walking through the studio that day, and we were looking over kind of a bay of a number of people behind their desk and so forth. And she said, it, it, it really hurts my heart that when I say Christian uh, among these people, they think right-wing political activists. They don't mm-hmm. think of people who love God and solve problems. In fact, that is the number one reason I think that uh, we can shift things if we start thinking about solving problems because culture doesn't care who solves their problem they just want their problem solved and if you solve a problem in the life of a person you'll start to have influence and that's exactly what jesus did he solved the problem you know when he first met peter he solved his fishing problem then he solved his tax problem by telling him how to go catch a fish and there would be a coin in its mouth Uh, He solved the problem for the prostitute who was going to be stoned. He solved the problem of feeding 5,000 people. And so almost every encounter he had, he solved the problem for someone. And as a result, people began to follow him, and uh, he had influence in that life. Now, just imagine if you're a marketplace person, if you start thinking about how can I solve the problem for my business or a friend of mine who's going through a problem or any type of situation or community, how can we solve a big problem in my city or local town? Uh, Just think about what can happen when you start thinking like that. Yeah. And what are, you know, your thoughts on, you know, starting to solve those problems? Because uh, I know you, uh, you know, you and Lance, Lance Walnow is a big friend of the program and he's been been on and you guys got together and had this conversation about how do we do more of that? And I know this was quite a while you guys got together. What came out of that and what are some practical things we can maybe share with everybody listening on how to do that? Well, Lance and I, I first heard about the Seven Cultural Mountains in 2000 uh, through Lance, 
and uh, he didn't even know the origination of it himself. But um, so as we began to look at that, we decided to start hosting conferences around the country. Uh, Actually, it was mostly in Atlanta. But they were international events, and people would come from all over. And what came out of that is many people who would start collaborating and learning about how to be salt and light in the culture. And it wasn't about dominionism or trying to change people. It was really about, you know, how do I be salt and light in these seven areas? It's just a strategy that we can impact. You know, William Wilberforce was a great example of that, where he— uh, hung out with about 18 other <clears throat> individuals called the Clapham Group, and the Clapham was the city where he lived. Well, he got saved at 28 years old, and he was going to go into the ministry uh, and be a pastor, but uh, John Newton, who was a man who wrote Amazing Grace and was a former slave owner himself, said, no, you were called to politics, and that is where you should be. And so he took that advice, and he stayed in politics, and his lifelong work became an uh, effort to abolish slavery, which he did in uh, after 30 years of work. But there were 69 other initiatives that were both national and international in scope because 12 people, this, or 18 people, decided to walk together to leverage their time, talent, and resources. And most of those people were in these seven cultural areas. And so they used that strategy to be very effective. You know, as I've seen over the last decade, especially this sort of business as missions movement really start to take hold. And women and men in the marketplace are really realizing that they can use their business world to impact the lives of many from a spiritual perspective. Um, And there are six other mountains out there. So, you know, we have the religion mountain that we're standing on. We're, We're really have seen a movement in the business world, which would be the second mountain. But there are five others out there, and they're all really under attack. And I think in today's society, we really see especially government, media, education, arts and entertainment, um, those four are specifically under attack. You know, I, I think we're, we're holding our own a little bit in, in the family uh, mountain, but, um, you know, I'm a college professor, and I see in the education mountain, you know, people trying to rewrite curriculum and Um, testing changing and history being rewritten in textbooks and things like that. Um, And and that's particularly frustrating for me because I have younger children. Um, What do you tell people specifically about the education mountain? Well, the education mountain is probably the one we've seen the most liberalization of that. And it began back in the 1800s with the National Education Association. And for years, when our nation was founded, we were teaching children how to read and write based on a little booklet that had scripture in it. And uh, we had prayer in schools, and we were definitely a Christian foundation nation, even with all of the warts that we had with uh, slavery and all of that. But many, 70% of the founders of our uh, 
uh, nation were abolitionists, meaning they were against slavery. But we have seen uh, a dismantling of the spiritual foundation in the education area. And just think about Harvard and Columbia University and Princeton. All of those were institutions that were formed to train Christian leaders and pastors. Uh, And uh, so Harvard was one of the I mean, truth for Christ was its mission statement, and now they've adopted just truth. And so, but we've seen uh, such a liberalization in education. It seems like it's even escalated in the last five to seven years, even more so. It really does. It really does. And, you know, I live in a pretty, I would say, conservative part of Texas, and you know, we have a elementary school that was led by a Christian principal. And so even though it was a public school, um, she was a very passionate Christian and she had scripture in her office and her Bible on her desk and hired a lot of teachers that were, um, were Christian. And do you know, within the last five years, she was basically... Uh, she retired, but, uh, you know, there were things like people picketing that Amazing Grace was in the fourth grade recorder program and things like that. And what I've really seen is, uh, as Christians, we tend to just roll over and throw our hands up and say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. And that's how we've sort of given territory away on these seven mountains. What would you say to our listeners out there who who want to you know, put a stake in the ground and say no more. Well, as you describe that, I think of a woman that uh, uh, in Sacramento, California, who is head of the school board there, and uh, she has a powerful testimony of how God put her in that position and how she has to fight every day uh, being a conservative voice on that and how she had to learn to speak to people that are different from her and had different values from her, even the uh, gay rights uh, community and how God is using her. And she's respected by all of the people that uh, are there. Of course, she her values get attacked from Uh, quite often, but she stands her ground. And so I think she's an example of uh, someone who is being salt and light where she can be. Unfortunately, when we check out of culture, that just leads a void for others to come into it. And that's what we see often, that many Christians are just waiting for the rapture and say, you know, it's just all going to go to hell anyway, so why bother? But that's really not what Jesus called us to do. He said, uh, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, I pray uh, that heaven would come on earth until he returns. He's given us the mandate to be salt and light and to have the keys of the kingdom to represent his interest on earth until he comes back and then we give the keys back to him. (laughs) And so I think that we've got to understand what God's uh, call is for us to represent his interest on planet earth. Yeah, and that concept of calling, and I think a lot of people might get confused there. And and I know that, you know, that woman in California on the school board, the way that she's approached it with love and grace has allowed her to develop really good relationships uh, and have influence in groups that, you know, you that might surprise you, people that don't really, you know, 
share her values or, or beliefs or things like that, she's able to make progress. So I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit, uh, Oz, about maybe the nature of calling and how does it apply and kind of fit in with this seven mountain mandate you're talking about? Well, most of us are in the workplace, and it's understanding the reason that we are called to do what we do. In fact, uh, we were talking just before we got on about a um, webinar that I I just recently created called 10 Mistakes um, Business Owners Make and How to Avoid Them, and that, you know, a lot of us make some simple mistakes. One is not realizing the spiritual nature of our calling and the purpose of our calling. You know, if you don't understand your purpose, it's really difficult to fulfill it. You know, uh, it's just That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen by just, uh, you know, uh, waiting for God to do something. It's, it's, a, it's a cooperative process between us and God. And so understanding that, uh, that calling, is very important. It's all about identity, understanding our identity in Christ, understanding our identity uh, as a spiritual leader in our businesses. And what did God give us a business for? Uh, This is especially important for entrepreneurs because the greatest weakness for us entrepreneurs is that we get involved in a lot of good things versus God things. And we, we get eaten up by activity that maybe God never called us to rather than focusing on the one thing or few things that he has called us to. How do you discern what that is then, Oz? I think it's a combination of, um, you know, we we have something on our website that helps you discover your purpose. Uh, you can actually and go what's to What's your website? Uh, if you go to todaygodisfirst.com, mm-hmm. todaygodisfirst.com, that's actually an opportunity to get our free devotional. But when you do, you can download a booklet that we give away free called Discovering Why God Made You, you know. And uh, that is the first step to understanding your purpose. You know, years ago, I discovered that my purpose is that. God made Oz Hillman to be an articulator and shepherd of foundational ideas that lead to transformation. Now, that's not vocational specific. It's more my DNA. It was true of me as a golf pro. It was true of me as an ad agency owner. And it's true of me today as a Christian leader to help people articulate and shepherd people through processes that can help them lead a transformed life and a fulfilled life. So that's the first base of calling. Well, and I love what you said about kind of your calling. It's more of like a direction, right? It's not a very specific kind of what or how. And I think a lot of people kind of get uh, confused that they think their calling needs to be some kind of very specific assignment on what they do. But that's not what I heard and what you said. Is that correct? That's right. It's more like your DNA. And your DNA can be reflective in uh, a number of different vocations. So I just said that, you know, that was true of me in three different vocations. But it's kind of the driving thing that that moves you and and what you're motivated by. Uh, I love to teach people and engage with people to equip them. So that's a core DNA part of me. Now, that could be on the golf course. It could be in a business setting. It could be in my coaching business. It could be in the workshops that I do. So there's a lot of outflows of that. But the core thing is I'm called to teach others. 
You know, and you you touched on something a moment ago, speaking specifically about the woman on the school board, but I think all of us could take it to heart. And that is when we think about how Jesus approached things in the Bible, he didn't, you know, walk in and go, hey, man, you guys all don't look or act like me. So let me try to convince you why you're wrong. Um he he didn't approach it that way. He he went in and he just loved people and and he served them. And and I I think that in today's world, um, I, I sort of mentioned people are throwing their hands up or just you know not making eye contact with it is kind of the other approach. People think, oh, it's, I'm just going to take care of my little you know microcosm of the world and it's going to be okay. And you know that's really all I can do. But in fact, when we can look at these other areas and approach them with grace and love, as Jesus did, that is the way we can make the most impact. Instead of not entering an environment where people think differently or look differently or act differently, um, we really could be approaching it differently, And as Jesus did in the Bible. And I, I use for an example— um, you know, media, right? Media, government, arts and entertainment, those three in particular. You know, I was a VP of marketing for Universal Studio years ago, and um, I I was surprised <laughs> at um, at the entertainment world because I was I was young and um, I was very different, and and I had the opportunity to just go in and. And be myself, but not try to force my beliefs on other people. Um, but that's hard to do, especially in today's world. I kind of I describe it as the fire's been turned up, and so everybody is just on edge, and everyone is so defensive of their own beliefs, Christian and and others. And so it's a little bit harder to do that in today's world. How? You know, what would your advice be out there to folks who, you know, are listening and they want to make a difference, but they feel like they're in this sort of boiling, um, you know, intense environment today? How would how would you advise them? Well, I have a great case study of that. Mm -hmm. uh, back, uh, Lance and I were part of a speaking team at Harvard, and within two weeks of the announcement of a uh, community transformation conference that would be held at Harvard, hosted by a student uh, group, uh, we were all attacked online all over the internet. We saw things about our lives that we, we had no idea we were involved in, uh, but because none of them were true. And uh, what we found was once the gay community and Muslim community found that we were going to be on campus, they began a campaign trying to cancel that event and not have us come because what they thought we were going to do was come in there and, and bash them and, and, you know, judge them and, and speak uh, negative of them. And of course we, we were not planning to do that at all. So anyway, they were not successful in getting us shut down, and our host was very effective in, in uh, defending us. And so we had the event. Well, we had about 50 protesters out in front of the event every day, and uh, I had a placard 
with my name on it that said that I was an anti-gay person and uh, helped a legislation in Uganda. Well, I wasn't <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with any legislation in Uganda. And uh, but anyway, this is kind of their perception and how they approached it. Well, at the end of the meeting. Uh, some of the organizers of the protests were in the coffee area, and Lance and I invited them into a room and said, would you guys come and talk to us? And so they agreed to. There was about six of them, and we had a Harvard professor moderate our conversation, and we said, what's on your mind? Why do you, why do you feel that uh, you needed to protest us? And so they started accusing us, and the man who spread all the lies about me was in the room, and he started accusing me. And I said, well, let, let me tell you something. Would you like to know the truth of what you just said? I said, I, uh, I was in Uganda before that legislation ever happened, and I would never be in favor of that legislation to begin with. He said, really? And so he says, uh, so I've wrongfully judged you. I said, yeah, you have. He said, would, would you like me to do a retraction in the Harvard paper? Uh, I said, yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much. And so we had this dialogue that uh, we uh, just listened to them. We didn't uh, be defensive with them. We stood our ground. We had, you know, boundaries that we had, but we didn't get angry with them. And to make a long story short, by the end of the meeting, we were able to shake hands and the Harvard professor turned to the uh, leaders and said, gentlemen, I just went through this conference. Your name was never mentioned. In fact, we would be glad to have a conference like this on Harvard anytime. And so he says, you guys have wrongfully judged them. And so, so a bridge was built. And that night, uh, Lance spent the uh, evening with one of the leaders the, uh, out till two in the morning and spending time, and he was able to give him a C.S. Lewis book. But all that happened because we didn't react. And I think the point to your question is one of the things that many Christians do is we overreact, and we don't allow conversation to take place, and we don't allow bridges to be built. And conversation is one of the biggest things uh, that we can do to start building relationship with people. Absolutely. That's a great, I love that case study. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, that's such a, a, a great reminder too, um, Oz, is that, you know, having uh, conversations with people who we disagree with maybe, uh, or it looks like we're in disagreement with, but showing up the way Christ would show up, in love, with grace, with humility, not trying to convince somebody, but to really try to understand what the situation is. But like you said, right, you had boundaries. You weren't going to, uh, you know, apologize for something that you you didn't do just to kind of placate somebody. But that actually led to uh, building a bridge. And I think that is, uh, you know, that's a skill I think a lot of us have to start to learn, isn't it? I, I, and I know I, there's been times in my past where I want to, I hear somebody say something, um, and what I want to do is, you know, engage in like a debate or a dialogue to convince them to try to shift their opinion. Um, so how do we kind of balance maybe that desire with really wanting to have maybe influence in an organization, uh, a community, a culture? You know, uh, I think one of the things that uh, people can do is that, you know, we're going to host a, an event in Washington in 2019 called the International Culture Shapers Summit. And one of the things we're going to do there is we're bringing over 40 
leaders in the seven areas to speak to us and also gather leaders to start in having conversation about better ways of impacting culture. And uh, so, you know, like we've got Roma Downey, who's going to be our arts and entertainment speaker. We've got Tony Perkins with the Family Research Council. We've got Hugh Hewitt with MSNBC and uh, just a number of other leaders. And this is a great place to connect with each other to hear how people are effectively uh, being salt and light in these seven areas. And so I hope that your listeners will check us out at uh, cultureshaperssummit.com. That's cultureshaperssummit.com. And uh, they can learn about uh, this event in Washington, D.C. We're uh, co-sponsoring it with the Museum of the Bible, which is an incredible $1 billion project that opened in November of last year uh, that uh, Hobby Lobby uh, is behind the financing of that. And, of course, they're a great testimony of a kingdom-minded company. Yeah, and Steve Green's going to be there. And just everybody listening, to Eternal Leadership is a sponsor of the summit. So I'm going to be there and be a great place to, to meet everybody who's part of our audience. Uh, because, you know, this is such an important focus and I love what you're doing. It's like, how do we, you know, how do we take uh, a bunch of like, like-minded people that are operating in all these different areas of society and what can we do to actually start to increase our influence for positive outcomes to solve problems that exist right now, because it's like you said before, it's in solving those problems, being part of the solution is what then will increase our influence and allow us to take back territory. And, uh, you know, something uh, I've also been thinking about, right, is you talk about this as a kingdom mandate, right? Uh, And from a kingdom perspective, it's simply just acknowledging God's sovereignty in everything, Every single one of these mountains, uh, whether some people acknowledge it or not, but it, it's it's you know it's sovereign to him, which means he already owns that territory, and I think a lot of the a, a lot of this is actually the territory has already been prepared uh, for us to to occupy, to just plant our flag, and what we have to do is actually just kind of realize that mandate and actually just step up and step into that place that God's already prepared us for, he's equipped us for, he's prepared uh, the groundwork for us to have that influence in that area, but we just have to be activated to move into that. Don't you think, Oz? Absolutely, you know, and uh, I think that we have to be intentional about understanding God's process for us and how he wants to manifest his presence in and through our life and to touch people, you know, every day where we're uh, walking, you know, and that's what Jesus did. He, he, it was a lifestyle for him, you know, wherever he ran into people, he was uh, letting the love of God touch their lives. And because he was for them, he wanted them to fulfill their purpose. And uh, many times he had to confront, you know, wrong beliefs uh, other times he was just showing complete mercy, and so it's uh, understanding the difference and having wisdom in a culture that often reacts and overreacts to statements. Yeah, and I think as we, you know, just very practically today, everyone, you know, us, our listeners, if you could do one thing is when you run across someone you don't agree with or, you know, you 
you see them walking down the street, don't go to the other side of the street. Um, you know, engage, engage people, become more comfortable speaking with people that you don't agree with. And something I strive to do every day is instead of trying to convince them of why they're wrong or focusing on where we disagree, um, focus on where you do agree and and just explain to them why you believe what you believe without attacking their point of view. And I think if we could do that, um, maybe we have a shot at taking back some of these mountains and and doing just what the Lord told us to do in the Lord's Prayer, which is create heaven on earth until he gets here, just like you mentioned. That's right. That's right. So uh, so you're, so uh, anybody interested in the summit, uh, and we're going to have some other, you'll hear some other podcasts down the road. We're going to be interviewing some of the speakers as kind of a, a bit of a preview uh, to really promote this, because uh, we really want to bring together uh, just like-minded men and women who really want to be out there, make a difference, get out of the stands, get on the, you know, on the field, and actually help move the needle. Versus, like you said, Oz, just kind of wait for the uh, the army to be evacuated off the beach, right? That is not our role uh, to do here. That, in, in uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of believers kind of have that mindset. So, cultureshaperssummit.com. Um, today, God is first, uh, is your website. And you'd mentioned that webinar before. I just want to give people, if you want to go actually find that directly, it's the number 101010mistakeswebinar.com. Uh, and you can actually see that webinar that uh, Oz did. It's free. You can log in there. And, you know, just as, you know, as we wrap up, Oz, what are just some final thoughts, call to action for everybody out there listening? Well, I think that first off, we need to understand that uh, the devil wants us to believe a lie about who we are and our identity and that, you know, that business, we're in business purely just to make money. And that's not the purpose of business alone for a believer. Uh, We are called to represent Christ in our business life as entrepreneurs and business leaders. And so we need to understand that we have a spiritual DNA if we are followers of Christ. And that's the number one thing that we need to reaffirm our identity is. And so God wants to use our businesses to have influence in culture, to pastor our employees, to uh, impact our community. There are a number of ways to do that, and that's what that webinar is about, is to really understand 10 different reasons that uh, we can get off course if we're not careful, and that should help your listeners. So that would be the number one thing. That's awesome. And what's the best way for people to connect to you? Is it is it through the website, Oz? Yeah, just go to todaygodisfirst.com and uh, they can connect with me there or they can write me at os at marketplaceleaders.org. That's os at marketplaceleaders.org. Well, thank you so much, Oz, and I look forward to having you again on soon and seeing you this spring at the summit in Washington, D.C. It's going to be an incredible event, and uh, please give our best to... uh, Pamela and I would just encourage you guys to go back and listen to some of those episodes we've had with Oz and Pamela in the past. They are they're just absolutely phenomenal and just thank you my friend for all that you do for for really just equipping, inspiring and just launching um, individuals into 
the greatness, the the role, uh, the calling in which God has prepared us to do. Amen. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate it.